wondering, who is that? I came for Pastor Malcolm. Who is that? Uh, listen, you're already here. It's too late. I see you. If you leave now, it's rude, okay? So uh, just, just hang in there. I promise uh, it'll be okay. Listen, it's a joy and a privilege to be here in his stead. I'll be praying for him as he is uh, out, of, uh, out of state. He's, he, I think he's preaching this morning at, a, at another church. And uh, so y'all just be praying for him. But what I want to do first is I want to take a moment because I feel God's presence is already here with us. Uh, I know it's here with us, but I want to pray. I want to uh, just take a moment to acknowledge him, and then we'll, we'll be seated, and we'll go from there. Y'all, y'all okay with that? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the worship we've had already. Lord, you are a good, good father. And Lord, we are honored to be in your presence, and we are honored to be here with you now. And Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to be here to present your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, hide me behind the cross, Lord. I know that's a cliche, but Lord, honestly and truly, I don't want me to be out here, Lord. I want you to be center stage, the, the attention, uh, uh, the affection. Uh, Lord, I want you to be the center of it all. And Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise your precious holy name. Amen, amen, amen. All right, y'all go ahead and, se- go ahead and have a seat. Uh, listen, uh, what we have going on right now, this is Miss Amanda Miller, and uh, she's nervous as a cat full of rocking chairs uh, just to stack these little pieces on the cross here. But she painted this uh, in about six minutes or less. Uh, we, we had this Mission Blitz event this past week. It started Wednesday, and it went through Saturday. We did this with our student ministry, and uh, we had different aspects of worship take place from skits and dramas to videos, and this is part of the art worship that we did. So uh, she was painting this during a song on, on Friday night, and it came together like this. And when she was painting it, we're like, that looks like nothing. What is that? Uh, it looks just like a bunch of scribble or whatever. Then she put it on the cross, and we we're like, wow, wow, that's, that's incredible. Uh, and so I'm, just, I'm thankful that Temple is full of talented people. There's a lot more talented people here at Temple than I think we even know. Um, so what I want you to do is I want to invite you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do today. We're going to address a a topic, maybe a question you have had, or maybe you've encountered people asking you. And so I want to try in some way, somehow, go through the scriptures and maybe have an opportunity to answer this question. And the question that we have before us is this. What happens to those who have never heard? What happens to people who have never heard the gospel? Because in, in, in our American mindset, we think it's fair if people who have never had an opportunity to hear about Jesus, we have some type, some way come up with a conclusion that it is okay if they go to heaven. And I, 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 would, I would argue with you that I want to believe that too. But we have a staunch warning in Scripture that we're going to encounter this morning, but we're going to try to address and answer the question of what happens to those people who have never heard the gospel. And so we find in Romans chapter 1 some of the beginnings of this question. But let me tell you a little bit about, before we go even further, I just want to say I was blessed to be on that Dominican trip. Absolutely astonished by the response of the people there. Hungry for the gospel. Hungry for somebody just to say, hey, we love you. Jesus loves you. We want to help you. They were were desperate for someone just to give out a, a hand. And those kids, I was like the most popular person there. 
Jeff wants to claim that he was popular. No, those kids just acted like they liked him. They really liked me. They, they were my friends. They followed me everywhere. And there was this one kid, and I wish I, had a, I brought the picture with me to show you. There's this one kid, and, and, and one, one of the crafts we did one day, we passed out stickers. And Todd Berry was the main one passing out stickers, and, and there's, <laughs> it looked like he was getting attacked by ants. I mean, they were crawling all over him trying to get stickers. And then uh, Angela came and, and handed me this page. I didn't know what was on it until I flipped it over and realized it was a page of stickers. And then I realized they're after me now. And so they're chumping, trying to get these stickers from me. And so I start just distributing stickers to as many people as possible. And there was this one boy that kept coming back for stickers and stickers and stickers. And finally, I just ripped a piece of paper in half, and I gave him half the stickers, and I gave that other half away and just ran for my life. And I realized this boy covered himself head to toe, his arms, his legs, everything were covered with stickers. He left. For about 15 minutes, he came back, the stickers were gone. And, I said, and so I had a translator, and I said, well, where's your stickers? He said, I gave them to my mom. And I said, no, you didn't. And so the, I, I think I'm saying this right. If you speak fluent Spanish and I say this wrong, I'm sorry, okay? I, I don't know, all right? But I think the word is nobia, which is girlfriend. And I said, no, girlfriend. He says, no, 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 I gave them to my mom. I said, nah, girlfriend. He said, okay, I gave them to my sister too. I said, no, nobia. And he says, See, Novia. And so <laughs> he, he had ran off and like gave all the stickers to his girlfriend. And the next day, he's again harassing me for more stickers, more stickers. And so I found another page of stickers, and I brought with him, uh, brought him the next day with me as well. And, and he came, first thing he did when he saw me, he run to me asking for stickers. So I gave him some stickers, and he had them all over his arm, and everything ran off, came back, they were missing. And I said, Novia? He says, no. And he pulls up his shirt, and they're all stuck to his belly. And what he had done... As if when people saw the stickers, they're like hounding him, like, give me a sticker. And so he hit him by putting him on his stomach and put a shirt over him. And he was, but that was something I learned. And it's something you, you realize when you go to a place that doesn't have the privileges we have. It's something as simple as a sticker is special to them. A sticker. If I gave my six-year-old a sticker, she'd be happy for like 10 seconds, like, I want to go to Walmart. All right? she would, she'd be wanting something bigger and better because the privileges we are afforded here in America compared to what they have is so different, and, and a sticker is so special to them. And then this week, we had the opportunity to do Mission Blitz. We took around 80 people, students and volunteers, and we went into the, into the, the county of Coleman doing different types of ministry opportunities from construction type of work to doing ministry work and special needs facilities and the Commission on Aging. Uh, we went to all different places. Between our 10 groups, we accomplished some 17 different projects in two days. That's pretty impressive. Um, so I, I just want to give a, a big thank you to our students. Uh, there was one group of students that went and, and uh, cleaned out an entire basement full of bricks. And they, when I say basement full, I mean basement full of bricks. Uh, it was impressive. And, and they, uh, they hated my guts at first. But then eventually they realized, hey, this is special. This needs to be done. And, and uh, I'm just thankful for the opportunity we had. We had four of our own students come to know Christ during this week. And then Saturday, yes. Saturday we concluded at Neesmith Park. 
uh, we had about 170 people come out to, uh, to Neesmith Park, and we had just a free family field day where we had inflatables. We had these things called knocker balls, which are big inflatable balls. You just collide in each other as hard as you want to. Uh, and we gave out free food and watermelon. We had a petting zoo. Uh, all this stuff was available for the, for the community for free. We had about 170 people come out to that. And at one of the stations, we made gospel bracelets with different color beads, and each bead means a different thing. Uh, the black one means sin. The, rest, the red one means the blood of Jesus. The white one means that we can be pure in him. And, and you just get to say the gospel story while making a craft. And we had the opportunity. One of our students was able to pray with a little boy to receive Christ at this station. And so even at the field day, there were people getting saved. And so uh, I just want to let you know there's stuff happening here in Temple. There's stuff happening and, and, and so this brings back to the question, though, what happens to those who have never had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus? And so in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, this is what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20 is important. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. If you have a Bible that you can write in and highlight and all that kind of stuff, this circle, underline, whatever, are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead. And here's another important phrase. So they are without excuse. Say that with me. For they are without excuse. And verse 21 says, Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So here's the picture. Every person in all of creation, past, present, and future, has knowledge of God, because God continually reveals himself to man. We see it in Romans. God has made his invisible attributes, what? Clearly seen so that they are without excuse. So God has made himself revealed to all men, past, present, and future. There is not a person on the planet in this room, thousands of miles in the deepest parts of the Amazon jungle. There is not one person in an Eskimo in Antarctica, not one person that, is with, uh, that has an excuse to say, I just, I just didn't know there was something bigger than myself. I just didn't know. Where can you go today that you do not see the creation of God? Where can you go that you do not see something God created and say, wow? See, see, there's two types of ways God reveals himself. And you can write this down if you want to. But there's two types of ways God reveals himself to mankind. There's general revelation and special revelation. And I'm going to teach you what this means. General revelation, God reveals himself three ways in a general way. Through general revelation, he reveals himself three ways. Through the human conscience, through history, and through creation. What do I mean? The human conscience. You can go to any place. It doesn't matter if the gospel has reached there or not. Let's just say we we found a place that the gospel has never penetrated. A missionary has never found. The name of Jesus has never been spoken. And we go to this people do you know they're going to have an innate sense of right and wrong? They're going to understand that it is wrong to murder, it is wrong to lie, it is wrong to steal. Who told them this? 
Who's told them that these things were wrong? Could it be that we have a God who is morally upright and the absolute authority of right and wrong, who then, because we are made in his image, we now are born instinctually with the the idea of right and wrong. We know what is okay and what is not okay. Can the human conscience become perverted and corrupted that things that that should be okay uh, or should not be okay are now okay and things that are not okay uh, are becoming tolerable? Sure, the human conscience can become perverted and and, and skewed. But for for the reality of this... There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus who know what is right and what is wrong. No one told them this. They are born with it. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, and God puts in every person a conscience. And they know there is a right and a wrong. The human conscience testifies that there is a God. What about creation? What about creation? I love to hunt, and I love to fish. Any hunters, fishermen in here? Seven. Okay, all right, great. Um, (laughs) This is going to go over everyone's head then. All right, but I love to hunt and I love to fish. I love fishing more than I love hunting. And I moved from Panama City, Florida to here uh, about eight or nine months ago. And, and I realized really quickly that the fish are a lot smaller in freshwater than they are in saltwater. All right, I had a boat, had a, about a 20-foot center console boat, and I would go out fishing and, and I would love to go inshore fishing, fresh, uh, uh, catching redfish and flounder and speckled trout. I love that. My dad has a bigger boat, by the way. Hi, Dad. I know you're watching. All right. Um, my dad had a bigger boat, and we'd go offshore fishing. And we'd go maybe seven or eight miles off, and uh, we, would, we would then catch red snapper and grouper and cobia and amberjack. All right. And amberjack, you fight for like 10, 15 minutes. By the time you get it up, you're wore out. And then they say, I come here. And they're like, Let's go brim fishing. <laughs> and you get a little bit of old cricket, and you put it on a little bit of old hook with a pole, and you stick it there, and you pull up a fish about this big, and you're like, woo, right? I mean, so, but I love fishing, and I love hunting. But this is what I love most about going fishing and hunting is this. Early in the morning, let's say you're getting on a boat, the boat is still wet from the dew because it's so early, and you get in that boat, and you go across this glass water, And in the horizon, you see the sun begin to rise. And all of a sudden, you're just awestruck, and you say, God is good. All of a sudden, you see a piece of his creation coming to life, and you're thinking, he is big. And he loves us to enjoy beautiful things. Our God is big. And then you just take a moment to admire it. Same thing with hunting. You go early in the morning before the, the, the sun even comes up. You're in your tree stand. You're shivering cold because you're just dumb to be that cold in, in the middle of like 4 o'clock in the morning. And, but you just want to go kill something because that's what men do. Because we're, right? And so we go hunting. And we climb up a tree stand, and we wait there, and we wait there, and in the darkness, you hear things start moving around, and your mind is playing tricks on you. You're like, that's at least a 14 point. That's a big one right there. And so you're listening to these things, and all of a sudden, the sun begins to come up and start shining through the trees, and, and then you start seeing, it's like squirrels and field mice, and you're like, oh my gosh, like I thought it was a big old deer tromping through here. But at that moment, when the sun is coming through, and all of a sudden, all of nature begins to awake and come alive, and the, tree, and the, and the birds begin to sing, and the squirrels begin to jump from tree to tree, at that moment, I just sit awestruck and say, God is big, and God is good. And in, in Psalms, you read, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. When you go outside and you look at the stars, and you see how infinite numbers there are, you say, God is big, and God is good. Creation testifies that there is a God 
God reveals himself to all of mankind through his creation. That is why you go to these places who've never been penetrated with the gospel, who've never had a missionary. You can go to these places and they are worshiping something. Because they look at the sun and they say, the sun, it gives life to our crops. It helps me uh, give, get life because it warms me up. It gives life to my livestock. And therefore, I know there's something bigger than me inside of me as, as a desire to worship something. I just don't know what it is. But that thing seems to be pretty important. I'll worship that. Because they see creation and they see there's something bigger than themselves, and there's a desire to worship whatever it is, but they just don't know what it is, so they choose something to worship. Inside everyone is the desire to worship, and, and through creation, we can see that God exists. History can tell us God exists because we look back and see how God has preserved and, 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 and his, his fingerprints all over the fabric of history. We can look back and see how Israel has been gone, gone through struggle to struggle to struggle, yet God preserves Israel. We see that he, is, he has a special interest in special people groups through history. God reveals himself to us through history. That is general revelation, history, human conscience, and creation. But can a man look at a sunrise and say, wow, there's something bigger than myself? That must be a God or God. Is a sunrise enough to save a man? No. Is reading a history book enough to save a man? No. Is the human conscience and having a knowledge of right and wrong enough to save a man? So general revelation just reveals that God exists. But then special revelation through special revelation, through the Holy Spirit, through his word, and through Jesus Christ, God reveals himself. Special revelation. Can a man get saved by reading the Bible? Absolutely. There is enough information in his holy word to save a man. Can the Holy Spirit begin to move on an individual and bring them to a place of conviction where they are led up to salvation? Can the Holy Spirit do that? Absolutely. Can an encounter with Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, is that enough to save a man? Absolutely. General revelation is enough to reveal to mankind God exists, but special revelation is there so that man can then know who this God is and engage and worship this God. Both are needed. But we see here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, that people have seen the invisible things of God, the creation of the world, verse 20. They're clearly seen. And they're understood. So they know that God exists. And then something radical happens in verse 25. It says, They changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. So there's these people all over the world who have not heard the name of Jesus. They don't know who he is. So they worship something. They do the best with the, what they have. They have a general idea that God exists, so they worship something. Wouldn't God be pleased with that? Shouldn't he be okay? There's a people who have a desire to worship. They just don't know who to worship or how to worship, so they worship something. Wouldn't God be okay with that? Let me give you a really kind of rough analogy on how this might work. Let's say I leave town for six months for work. Temple sends me somewhere, all right? Knowing Dustin, it'd probably be jail, all right? But Temple sends me somewhere. He's like, Andrew, you're doing jail ministry, 10 months. All right, but I'm going somewhere for six months, 10 months, whatever. In my absence, my wife finds a substitute husband 
And so I come back in the door six months later, and there is this random man holding my son. And she says, while you were gone, I just brought somebody in to kind of take your place. How do you think I would react? Like, oh, okay, nice to meet you, sir. Nice, thank you, thank you very much. No, there would be two bodies in the backyard, and then I really would be in jail, okay? So they would, they would not be okay. I would not be okay with somebody as a substitute for me. Do you think God is okay with there being a substitute for him? No. God is a jealous God, and that doesn't make him wrong. Because we think of jealousy as, it is, as, as lacking something, like somehow I, if I'm jealous for you or jealous of you that I have some kind of insecurity, that makes me kind of uh, uh, weak, I guess. But when we think about the jealousy of God, it's not that he's insecure, it's just that he loves you so much that he alone wants to be the object of your affection of an attention, and he doesn't want any substitute in anyone's life. And so it's not okay for people to worship the sun, it's not okay for people to worship Buddha, it's not okay to worship Hindu gods, it's not okay because God does not desire for any substitute to be in his place. He alone wants to be the center of their affection, the focus of their heart. So, we see people begin to reject God and begin to worship the creation. And we say, is this okay? And it's absolutely not okay. So what we see is that there is a multitude to warn. There is a multitude to warn. This is not okay. We have to get out there and tell them There's a multitude to warn. Hey, we think that maybe, maybe there is an innocent person out there. I've been asked this question, and I've read this in a book as well. David Platt, if you're not familiar with him, has a great book called Radical. It's a great book. But I've had people ask me this question as well. What happens to the innocent man in Africa? who's never heard about Jesus? What happens to him? Does he go to heaven? And this is my response. Yes. And some of you are like, what? Squirming a little bit, like, Pastor Malcolm, get back. All right, here is the reason. There is no such thing as an innocent man, Period. We read, we read the words of Paul in the book of Romans, and we see that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We see that there is none righteous, no, not one. All are on equal playing field here, okay? There is no such thing as an innocent man. And so to assume that there's an innocent man somewhere who has never heard the gospel, that's somehow going to heaven because they've never heard the name of Jesus, if we assume this, if we say that somebody's going to heaven because they've never heard about Jesus, then what is the worst thing we can do to that person? Tell them about Jesus. You see how that doesn't make logical sense? If a person doesn't know Jesus and they're going to heaven because they've never heard of Jesus, then the worst thing we could do is then tell them about Jesus because now they have a choice. And then by saying that logic, by having that kind of logical understanding, we are then perverting the gospel because Jesus' name brings life, not death. John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. It is his name alone that brings life. But if we assume that people can go to heaven without hearing about Jesus, then the worst thing we could do is tell them about Jesus because all of a sudden they have a choice to make. Do I follow him or do I don't follow him? 
there is a multitude of people to warn. There is no innocent people. The Bible is clear. Now you'd be thinking, Andrew, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can we say we have the only way? Don't we worship all the same God? Don't all of us worship the same God? No, we don't. Well, that's just closed-minded. It's the Bible. It's not my words. Don't get angry at me. This is what the Bible commands us to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus. If there are people who haven't heard the name of Jesus, it's not the Bible's fault. It's our fault. It's not Scripture's fault. It's my fault. If, if, if we, have, we have a responsibility to get to them, to rescue them. Jude 1.23 says, To pull them from the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Listen, we have a responsibility to get out and preach and tell people about Jesus. There is a multitude to warn, and there is a message to give. There is a message to give. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we see something. Very important. Look at those very first two words there. What did they say? But now. You know what that means? Something great is about to be said. Paul is delivering this message of condemnation, how no one is righteous, no one is good, that no one's getting a heaven apart from Jesus. And now all of a sudden, in chapter 3, in verse 21, he says two simple words that you know there's a great shift about to take place. And he says... But now, but now, let's continue reading. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of a God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe, for there is no difference. Verse 23 is a very famous verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. This means a substitute. This means you are headed for death, hell, and the grave, but then all of a sudden Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to take his place. I'm going to take his punishment. I'll be his substitute. He doesn't have to do it. I'll do it for him. And that is the good news, that Jesus is our substitute, that he's done something that we, uh, we deserved upon ourselves. And Jesus took our place. He is our propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins, not just the forgiveness, but the complete washing away of sin. Listen, you read the book of Hebrews, and you see that it says that the the priest would stand day after day offering sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because one sacrifice was not enough. Let me ask you a simple question. I work with teenagers, so I have to speak simple sometimes. Okay, and this is is a simple question I want to ask. In the Garden of Adam and and Eve, the Garden of Adam and Eve, that made no sense. Uh, In the Garden... (laughs) of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. Were Adam and Eve sheep? Were they goats? Were they calves? No. Were they people? Absolutely. So how does a sheep take away fully the sins of man? How does a goat take away the sins of man? How does a calf take away the sins of man? How does a dove take away the sins of man? It was none of those things that instituted sin. It's none of those things that brought sin into the world. Mankind brought sin into the world. So therefore, we needed a perfect sacrifice that was not a billy goat, that was not a sheep, that was not a cow, that was not a dove. We needed a sacrifice that was a man. And it had to be a perfect man. And Jesus was that perfect man. 
Only he was able to take himself to the cross and allow him, himself to be the, the propitiation, the substitution, allow the sins of the world to be placed on him, and then die and then be resurrected three days later. It was him. He was the perfect sacrifice. So in the book of Hebrews, we see the, the high priest would minister daily, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But it says that Jesus came and offered one sacrifice, and then went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know when you sit down? The only time you really sit down is when you're done. You're done. Jesus says, that was enough. I'm done. But here's, here's an epidemic that we have, and we saw it a lot in the Dominican. 100% of the people that came and sat at my chair that I got to engage into a gospel conversation with, 100% of the people I asked, are you going to heaven when you die? 100% of the people said this, yes. And then I started asking them, why? And they would say, because I'm a good person, because I go to church, because I read my Bible, because God is good. I just want to make a radical in-your-face statement for just one moment. Heaven is not the default when you die. Do you understand that? Heaven is not the default when you die. People think just because God is good, they're going to heaven. And God is good, but He is just. And because He is a just God, the Bible tells us that we are objects of His wrath. At one point in your life, you were at enmity with God. That basically means God was your enemy. That's not good. That's never good when God is your enemy. But because of our sin, because we are sinners, God hates sin. He has to deal with it. He has to punish sin. And therefore, heaven is not the default for people when they die. Hell is the default for people when they die. And that is something we don't like talking about because hell is scary. And it's a big word that we don't like to use in church because people might leave. But the reality is hell is real just as much as heaven is real. But heaven, the only way you get into heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. And I had to have these conversations at the Dominican with these people, and they would say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. So they're basing their entrance into heaven on their own good works and their own good deeds, and that is wrong. They're not getting there. The Bible clearly says our good deeds are like filthy rags. So we're going to come to Jesus. We're going to come to him with a handful of nasty rags and be like, is this enough to get in? He's going, no, that's gross. Get out of my face. That's not good enough. And so as I begin to engage with these people in Dominican, I would then ask, Describe heaven to me. What is heaven like? And they would say, oh, heaven is beautiful. It's got gold streets, crystal seas, pearly gates, no sickness, no pain. I say, so heaven sounds like a, like a good place. They say, oh, it's good. It sounds like a perfect place. I said, it's perfect. And then I would take them to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then I would look at, I'd say to myself through a translator, I'm not good. I've sinned, and I've lied, and I've done bad things. I'm no good. And now I'd say to my translator, she is no good. She has done bad things. She is a sinner. And then I had Sidney Robertson with me at my station. That's Jeff's daughter. And I'd say, she's very bad. <laughs> she is no good at all. And, of course, then they would start laughing. And, and then I would look at them, and I'd say, and that means you too. You're not good. You're bad. You've messed up. And they would, they would agree and say, yes. And then I would ask this question, so how does a bad person get into a good place? And all of a sudden they realized there has to be something more. There, there has to be something more. 
there has to be something other than themselves. There has to be something more. And here's this great theme in Scripture. God's love for his own glory and God's love for sinners who scorn his glory. How can I say God loves his own glory? That seems kind of egotistical. If God loves anything more than himself, then he becomes less than that thing. Does that make sense? If God ever loves something less than himself, then that means he becomes, uh, uh, or more than himself, I should say. If God loves anything more than himself, then he becomes dependent on that thing. And God is dependent upon nothing. So the one thing that brings God the most glory is himself. That's not egotistical. That's just how God is. He is a divine being. He is big, and he is powerful, and he's creator. And if he loves anything more than himself, then he, that, then he begins to depend upon that thing. So there is a love that God has for his own glory, but there's also a furious love that he has for sinners who reject and despise that glory. So how can God love his own glory and love sinners who despise his glory at the same time? It seems to be a conflicting theme going through all scripture. How do these things resolve themselves? And can I say they violently collide at the cross where God's glory is preserved and God's love for sinners is displayed and on the cross of Calvary is where everything comes to a final conclusion that God's love is on display, that God's glory is on display, and that restitution and payment of sins is on display. It is the cross of Calvary that entrance into heaven exists, not by good deeds, not by good works, not by Bible brought, not by uh, a, a church attended. Those things are good, but that is not it. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. Listen, there is a message to deliver. There's a message to deliver. People are deceived that because God is good, they're going to heaven. And I can tell you, there's a lot of good people in hell. And that's a horrible thing to think about, but it's true. It's true. And Lord, help us to be broken for the lost all around us. Do you know there's lost people in Coleman? There are people as saturated with churches as Coleman is, there are people who have never heard about Jesus. And what are we doing about it? Charles Spurgeon was asked the question, what about the heathen who has never heard of Jesus? And Charles Spurgeon's response was this, I would dare say those who have the gospel and do not take it to them, I doubt they're really saved at all. The issue is sin. The cure is Jesus. So how do we get it to them? Listen, there is a mission to accomplish. There is a mission to accomplish. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. We see God's mission. Romans chapter 10, or 13. I'm sorry, I said it right first time. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And this is what it says. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's awesome, isn't it? Hey, that's all it takes. Call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. That's all it takes. In verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And shall, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? This is the chain of command. This is the mission of God. This is how he gets the word to those around us. All right, you ready? We're going to do something a little different. We're going to start in verse 15 and read backwards. 
Okay, because I want to ask you a series of questions, so I want you to engage with me, okay? And so this is the questions we're going to be asking. All right, in verse 15, it says, except they be sent. Is God still sending people? Okay, let's skip to verse 14. It says, when a preacher preaches, they will hear. Do people hear when a preacher preaches? Yeah, not not everybody's going to be listening, but people will hear when a preacher preaches. We're, We're going from the bottom up, if you haven't caught on yet. When people hear... The preacher, will they believe? Yeah. Maybe not everyone will believe, but certain people will believe. Absolutely. There's going to be people in a crowd that a preacher preaches to that someone may believe. Now, those who believe, are they still called? It says that they will be called. Does God call believers? Yes. Seems like a pretty good plan. The preacher will preach. People will hear. The hearers will believe, and those who believe will then be called. And those called will be sent, right? We read in verse 15 that they will be sent. But where is the weakness? If you notice something, I skipped something here. There's a weakness in this chain of command. It's God's plan, but there's there's a, a weak link in the whole plan. Look in verse 15. It says, how shall they preach except they be sent? So we believe that God is still sending people. But are the people he's sending, are they preaching? This is the weak link in the plan. Because God may be sending you, but are you preaching? Well, I'm not Pastor Malcolm. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be Pastor Malcolm. You just be you, and you go preach. Are you preaching? God has saved you. God has sent you. Are you preaching? So, has God called you? Absolutely. He has sent you. He has sent you. God is sending people still. But are you preaching? Because if you don't preach, then they will never hear. And if they never hear, they'll never believe. And if they're never believed, then they'll never be called. And therefore, they won't be sent. And then there won't be a preacher. And then there won't be people hearing a preacher. And there won't be people believing the preacher. And there won't be people uh, being called. And there won't be people being sent. And it's a vicious chain. Because if we don't do one job, then the whole thing comes apart. Are you preaching? There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus, and we have a command to go tell them, and there's people in Coleman County, there's people in Africa, there are 5,000 people groups, not 5,000 people, 5,000 people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus, and what are we doing about it? Because you have been saved, you have been called, and you have been sent, but are you preaching? I don't have the gift of preaching You don't have to preach like I'm preaching. You just go and share with somebody the love of Jesus. Andrew, I'm intimidated. There's a lot of people out there. Yeah, I'm intimidated too. I don't don't pretend, I'm not going to try to pretend that I got it under wraps. I, I mess up and I get scared and I miss opportunities. There are people I love dearly that I've yet to speak the powerful name of Jesus into their life and it haunts me. When I graduated high school, I went to two separate high schools one in Theodore, Alabama, and one in Panama City, Florida. Two different high schools. And I, I talked to zero people about Jesus, yet I was saved my entire high school career. And it haunts me because I had a captive audience every day to tell Jesus, uh, to, to speak to them the name of Jesus, and I did not do it. And I don't want you to take and have the same regrets as I do. So are you preaching? He has called you. You have been saved. He is sending you. But are you preaching? Because people need to know about Jesus, that he is the only way. There is no good deeds you can do. There is no good works you can do. It is only through the name of Jesus you are saved. But Andrew, I'm intimidated. There's a lot of people. 
Let me, let me conclude with this. Let's pretend for a moment there is only one person in the entire world that has never heard the name of Jesus. Just one. Are you still intimidated? All of a sudden it seems like, oh, one person, I can do that. That's feasible. Let's, let's pretend even more. Let's say out of all the world, there is one person who has never heard about Jesus. Now let's say that one person lives in Coleman County. Does that make you like energized? Like, I want to go find that person. I want to go find that person and tell them about Jesus because Jesus is real. And I want to go, there's only one person and he's in Coleman County. Yeah, I want to go find him. All of a sudden we become excited and engaged. Like, this is doable, right? All you have to do is start with one. Just one. So the question, what happens to those who have never heard? The answer is the answer we don't want to hear. But there's no such thing as an innocent person. If there was a way other than Jesus to go to heaven, then Jesus would not have had to come. But Jesus is the only way. Charles, uh, or C.S. Lewis said, if our sin is small, then our Savior must be small. But if our sin is great, then our Savior must be great. And we have a great Savior. All you have to do is go. So the, the question, what happens to those who have never heard? The, the, the job is not to ask or answer the question. The task at hand is to eliminate the question altogether. The, the task is to eliminate, to even have the question, what about those who have never heard? Because we're so diligent and so efficient and so zealous that we go and tell everyone. God is good, yo. <laughs> God is big. God is, God is in control. And people need to know about Jesus. I'm going to give a time of invitation because maybe you're here today and you're thinking, Andrew, you said a lot of things that um, I'm just not getting. Maybe you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. Maybe you have never had that conversation where you've engaged with someone to find out what does it take to be saved. And can I say it's very simple. You call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You believe on what he has done for you. You confess it with your mouth. You believe it in your heart. You repent of your sins. Hey, and you can be invited into the family of God. God, is, God loves you, each and every one of you. He has a special plan for each and every one of you. And those of us who are saved, I pray that we become uh, absolutely convicted that we need to share the gospel more with those around us because people are dying and going to hell every second, every second. It could be your neighbor, and it could be your family member. It could be a stranger at Walmart. It doesn't matter. There's still a soul. What are we doing about it? Let's pray. Would you stand up with me? And let's pray. Father.